0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News.
1: What's in store for markets, money, and economies in the year ahead? Brace yourselves for a preview of Breaking View's new book of predictions and prescriptions. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from Manhattan. It's that time of year when columnists stick their necks out and give their predictions for the year ahead. As ever, this year's book, A World in Transition, is chock full of intriguing ideas about what lies ahead in corporate finance and global economies. For the avoidance of doubt, we don't expect all of these will pan out. We are not fortune tellers. But we do like to think big, creatively, and originally about money. In this week's edition, you'll hear some pretty counterintuitive ideas. Like how Riyadh, Saudi Arabia is going to become oddly attractive to finance and business types. Or how the World Cup in Qatar will pay dividends around the Persian Gulf. We also talk about how faltering efforts to reduce carbon emissions will inspire investors to develop Plan B's for rising global temperatures. We predict Microsoft will continue to outpace its tech peers. And speaking of tech, we posit that that cult of revenue, the idea that top-line growth alone justifies bloated stock market valuations for young companies, will hit the skids in 2022. Maybe that's just wishful thinking on our part. And turning to Asia, we suggest Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, or TSMC, the world's biggest chip maker, will give the green transition on the island a much-needed spark. And this is just part one of our Predictions Views Room. Next week, we'll have another.
2: Now give a listen. This is Richard Beals in New York talking to Rob Syrah and my colleague up the road. We've got a couple of predictions we want to talk about, Rob. The first is your piece about the cult of revenue. Now, I've noticed this more and more, it seems, we talk about companies, we try and value companies, we're valuing them as a multiple of revenue. The sort of traditional way is, if anything, a multiple of profit. But so many don't have any profit these days. But even the ones that do, sometimes we we focus on multiples of revenue these days, which seems like a change from uh, back in the day to me. So what so what's going on here?
3: Well, like it, it's well, it's good to hear, be here first, and and like any good idea on Wall Street, they, Wall Street's taken it too far, and there are two things two things underlying this. The first is um, there are a lot more software companies out there today, and, and tech companies, and like the rise of companies like Amazon shows that profits can take quite a long time to show up. And especially if you look at software companies like these software as a service companies, you know, the the revenue will will grow very quickly and then it can take years for it to show up. And that's why you look at a multiple of sales because you can see, you know, what's baked in. The other root of it is um, so Boston Consulting Group, they did a famous study on wall street. and, And one of the conclusions was that among companies that over 10 years about 70% of value was just from revenue growth. And if you think about it, that makes sense because companies can't increase their, you know, if they're just cost cutting, they can't increase their margins to profit margins 100% or more, obviously. They have to, you know, right. have to stop at some point. But you can keep on, you know, ideally you can, you can grow a company at 10% or something or more for quite a long time. Right. And the rise of, of tech giants like Microsoft and Facebook are, are, are good examples of this. Um, I took a look at Microsoft, and over the past decade, the share price, it, it's done extraordinarily well. And most of that is just from revenue growth. The multiple, as a, as a multiple of sales, the enterprise value to sales, is about the same as it was.
2: Right. Uh, right.
3: Uh, so decade, I, guess,
2: I, I guess in a way you could say, at least in some traditional version of the world, margins have a limit. They, they revert to the sort of mean at some point or close to it. You might say the same about multiples in the market. I mean, right now, that seems a distant memory when multiples were lower, but nonetheless, they they have tended to revert to the mean over the years. Yeah. Uh, so the only thing that can really grow consistently is the revenue, if, if, if that's the framework. Yeah, exactly.
3: Now, the, the problem is that the idea has been that revenues, you know, you build it and profits will eventually come and that's worked out for some businesses just from um, you know like amazon for instance um, but the reason amazon was able to expand so quickly for so long is they had good cash flow to make it basic customers paid before they had to ship out the goods and so what amazon was able to do is able to finance its its growth almost entirely from internal cash flow the story got kind of uh, bastardized on the wall street so the companies people looked at companies like we work um, that's the office sharing. Uh,
2: yeah, company. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah.
3: And the revenue was growing, you know, like it was doubling more or more annually. And everyone thought, oh, well, this is going to be great. The valuation of the company went up to about $47 billion before the IPO. And then investors looked at it and said, well, hold on. They're only able to grow because they're getting financing from outside. The company isn't able to finance its growth itself. Then investors got a bit jittery, and they didn't want to put money into the company because there there wasn't any assurance that profits were going to follow. And WeWork today is worth about six billion dollars.
2: Right. So the the problem, or well, the sort of imminent problem for WeWork at the time, it tried to go public, was it was going to run out of cash, <laughs> and, the, and that's the that's the difference with Amazon, right? In the market, there was always this idea. Amazon's throwing off all this cash, but it's investing it in its own business. It wasn't bringing in a whole bunch of cash from outside all the time. And Jeff Bezos, who was running it at the time, he could, uh, the, the idea was he could throw a switch and say, right, we stop investment. Now we have profit. Mm-hmm. We, we work was never going to have that profit, at least not for a long time, and not with the sort of very wasteful model it was pursuing at the time.
3: That's exactly right. And you're seeing a lot of companies that are... Frankly, a bit similar to WeWork, uh, going out um, and having attracting huge multiples from investors. One thing to look at was the if you look at tech companies that are IPOing, these are obviously you know tend to be more speculative companies on average because they're having a, a float. Right. Price to sales for these companies is about at a 20-year high. That's according to a professor at University of Florida who tracks these things. It's only in 40 years, only two years have been higher. Those are both the dot-com years. So that points out that you know investors are putting pretty high multiples on these things. You know, and some of these companies, some of the companies that are attracting high multiples probably, you know, they are they're gonna stick around, like a company like Shopify, for instance. You know, it's got good cash flow. It's kind of more like an Amazon.com than a WeWork. But the price that investors are paying has has risen tremendously. Like about five years ago, Shopify right. was six times forward sales, now it's about 25 so that's you know there's a lot of a lot of baked in and then you go out even further and, and the assumptions become even more silly companies right
2: like- we, we, we've seen a lot of these in part this is uh, allied phenomenon with these uh, blank check companies that we call specs right where these yeah. companies merge with the, these basically heaps of cash to go public at valuations that are kind of imaginary almost
3: yeah, because they look out and they say, OK, what could this company, you know, what kind of revenue will this company have in five years time? Um, you know, these are very speculative businesses. They're companies like, you know, satellite imaging companies. You've got all these all these LIDAR companies for self-driving vehicles. You know, basically sales are, are zero or close to it. Or electric car companies. Rivian Automotive is, is a good example. They're worth about $82 billion on the market today. Uh, they weren't worth over $100 billion, about a you know, a few weeks ago, um, and this company, in the last quarter, they had uh, about one million of sales. Um, in other words, <laughs> there's no you know, people are there's no you know people are investing on hopes for what may happen three or four years down the line, and the problem is that you know car making you know who knows can they compete against other companies? I don't know, but there's you know every single existing automotive manufacturer is trying to get into electric vehicles as well. And the other thing is that this company isn't projected to be cash flow positive for years, and this is a very capital-intensive business. Right. So, yeah, we,
2: yeah, we, we know business. that from the traditional car makers, but also yeah. Tesla, which for plenty of periods in its relatively short life has been short of cash, or potentially short of cash now, seems to be over that hump. But that that was certainly a problem.
3: Yeah, and, and maybe they'll make it, but, you know, there's there's a good chance, you know, if you're taking years before you're going to become Getting you know, significant cash flow, in, that means you're dependent on outside investors to to raise capital. And if yeah. the mood shifts, then these companies might find it trouble, might find it difficult to raise capital on favorable terms.
2: Right, and I think your prediction is, since we're focused on the year mm-hmm. ahead, is that just like the dot-com years when multiples were this stretched before, um, there's plenty of things that in the coming year that could sort of puncture that bubble and. And make not necessarily crash to earth, but make it uh, uh, look a lot more sober again.
3: Like you know, like I said, the, the problem is that these these multiples have inflated on on all these sorts of companies, and you know the the ones that will be in trouble are the ones that don't have the cash flow to support it. Um, you know, yeah. a company like Microsoft, you know, we were talking about earlier, they've obviously got more than enough cash flow, than they know what to do with. They can return right. to. So even if if multiples crash, they'll be completely fine.
2: Let's talk about Microsoft for a second. But just for our listeners' benefit, I'd like to point out that, you know, it's one of the great delights of working from home is that you get to see a little and hear a little of everybody's home. And if you're hearing tweets, it's Rob Siren's bird. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So let's just talk for a second about Microsoft. You know, we, you and I have both written about this and talked about this over the past year or so. This is one of those well, founded in 1975 tech companies with huge power to, to generate profit and cash flow. And we've got a prediction that I wrote, but, you know, you've done plenty of work over, over the last year or so as well. Just looking at this company, and it's outperformed really most of its big tech peers over the past year. It's outperformed a lot of them over much longer than that. You know, unlike a lot of the others, there there's less that can kind of undermine that in the coming year, which makes it seem like a company that can do well yet again. You know, you can't. <laughs> it's, a, it's an old company, but more relatively in the tech world, but yet seems to have energy to keep on going.
3: Yeah, I think in, in your piece, you say that it could make uh, Satya Nadelli, the, the CEO, could make him the, the most successful second generation CEO ever measured by value creation. And so what what underlies this richard obviously it's 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 the cloud business but you could could you walk us through you know why that's such a good business and how they're doing there
2: you know in terms of nadella and being the most successful ever you know the the kind of idea in in looking at that was you know what happens a lot with these tech companies is they do fantastically well under their initial ceo or founder often and then sometimes the next person in does fine um, sometimes the next person in sort of does less well or just sort of keeps it ticking over in a way. The big comparison here is is the biggest company in the world, which is Apple. Tim Cook, dollar for dollar, has generated a little bit more in market like, capitalization gain since he took over, but he started from a larger base and he's been there longer.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So Nadella only probably needs another year, of, or one, one year of doing a little better than Cook and he'll pass him. And that's kind of the prediction here. And that's because, you know, Microsoft is right on so many of the trends, you know, the mega trends, as people like to call them, that are going on, the working from home, the moving to the cloud, not only of its own software, you know, the stuff we all use every day, like Word and Excel and all that, not only of that, but other people's business is moving to the cloud. And although that's traditionally been a business where Amazon was, Ahead of the game, Microsoft is catching up in terms of getting everybody else's business that they want to keep in the cloud and apply artificial intelligence and all kinds of other stuff to that business. And, you know, they don't have, to the same extent as, say, Apple, a hardware business which might be messed up by supply chains or a huge a segment of selling stuff in China or sourcing stuff from China that Apple has, for example, where trade and other things could, or, or trade policy for geopolitics could get in the way too. So it's really in a very good sweet spot.
3: Yeah, the, 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 the cloud business has been phenomenal for them. The knock against Microsoft is always like, well, you know, someone's going to come along the next generation and they'll supplant Microsoft. We'll all forget about using Word, we'll be using something else. And what's interesting is the shift to the cloud has made this more dominant, and made these these concerns disappear as part of my piece. I was looking at the forward uh, multiple of sales, as we were talking about before. Right. and when the data started it was about two point five times sales, and now it's uh, over eleven. and that that shows that partly that's investors are you know more comfortable with the com- the idea that the company's going to stick around. and part and part of it's also like the trends you you talk about. Like in your piece, you talk about how the cloud business is growing so fast because it's taking share from uh, Amazon. And part of that, I think, is just from companies wanting a second choice, needing a second choice. You know, they right, don't want to be blocked right. in Amazon or you know, they also worry about redundancy. You know, that's obviously a great business for both of them because, right. <laughs> because you know that all these companies are gonna sign up for you because there are only a couple of choices really.
2: Yeah and one last point on Microsoft and why Nadella may be the standout CEO next year is is that you know like some of these other big tech companies they can they're big enough to not be first and still win a market and the example here is Slack Technologies which is a very trendy it's nice it's nice software to use it's this you know workplace messaging chat type thing you know a step more modern than email I guess and Microsoft was way behind, but once they added it and figured out how to make it work reasonably well, called Teams, they've added users and left Slack in the dust basically. So uh, that's another reason for that prediction. Thank you very much, Rob. Those are two of our um, predictions for 2022 in the the tech space. Thanks,
1: George. George, you have four pieces in the upcoming predictions book Two of them concern, uh, let's say, the Gulf, that is the Persian Gulf and the Gulf states. The other two concern climate change, which you, of course, have been writing about consistently for this over this past year. Let's just sh- shift a little bit to your your Gulf pieces. One of them is about the possibility of FOMO in Riyadh or FOMO yeah. for Riyadh. Explain that.
4: Yeah, I mean, in the spirit of a slightly contrarian take, uh... <laughs> Uh, most, most people who are bankers in the Middle East and uh, business people in the Middle East, um, to the extent they work in Riyadh at all, they have historically lived in, in Dubai or Abu Dhabi, and they basically just fly in uh, during the week and then fly back out um, at the weekend. And the, the the obvious reason for that is that um, historically, Dubai has been a much nicer place to live. You can drink alcohol there if you're... Um, it's more kind of in tune with kind of various western uh, ways of, of living and hanging out and so that's kind of been that that's the status quo but um, what's kind of changing is that there's a huge amount of just work banker work of corporate work to do with um, Saudi Arabia and um, helping it transition to to, to to meet its 2030 transition plan uh, to transition away from uh, fossil fuels and um so there's there's a huge amount of corporate finance work to be done over the next 5 years or so the saudi finance minister has put a kind of 55 billion of privatization work and then there's all the stuff that the sovereign wealth fund the public investment fund is doing as well so there's a, there's a kind of corporate reason to do that and then, and then there's also a kind of stick that the saudi government have said where they they basically said that if you are an international company and you want to get government work? You want a piece of that action? You need
1: an office um, in Riyadh. You
4: need an office in Riyadh, and um, you need to do that by the end of uh, 2023. So okay, this it? year
1: we see we see a move. We have, we see a movement of businesses to Riyadh. Now we also are going to yeah. see something else in the region. No, it's not <laughs> across just uh just off the 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 Saudi Arabian Peninsula. There's that little thumb of of sand called Qatar, which is right. going to be the host to the World Cup. You've got a view about that. What's your who's going
4: to win? Well, uh, basically, it's obviously going to be a win for Qatar because of the shop window of the world. But it's the interesting thing is that if you look at the um, uh, the Gulf area as a whole, they've had a bit of a smack from COVID like everybody else, but they've been the, the, slowest, the, the slowest recovery area of all the kind of geographical areas around the world economically. And what people are saying that it, it's quite interesting that Qatar clearly you know that's where the main action is going to be but it's not actually totally clear where everybody is they're expecting over a million visitors there's only like three million people in Qatar, so there's right. there, there, there's there's a bit of a kind of question mark over exactly where all these people are going to stay and uh, a lot of, one theory is that a lot of people are going to base themselves in dubai and just do the 40 50 minute hop uh across the gulf for the on match day and um now that you can
1: fly, I remember mean, you. You and no, I, of
4: course, took a trip there <laughs> exactly. to
1: Dubai. We had to go via the other a, way. Yeah.
4: Exactly, yeah, exactly. So it, it's it's a lot easier to do that now. And the the general view is just from people I'm talking to is just like, well, you know, if you go back to when the blockade was on, um when Saudi and UAE and massively fallen out of Qatar, you wouldn't. You had a big uh, World Cup. In Qatar, then there wouldn't be too many benefits flowing to uh, people in the region. But that's that should that shouldn't be the case this year. That you, you should see that happening. And the wider po- point is that the World Cup can therefore hopefully provide a bit of a, a boost to the whole region in terms of its the, their economies. Interesting.
1: Okay, now let's go back. Let's let's think of the world rather than just um, Qatar and Saudi. Well, you have yeah. a couple of other pieces uh, in the in the book. One of which is that the that businesses and investors are going to have to prepare for a plan b and the plan b is right it's it's the alternative to go, the reaching net zero it's sort of the if we don't reach what net zero what happens yeah, what happens so go walk yeah. through that that scenario
4: yeah well basically at cop 26 in glasgow um a lot of focus is on there's what people call mitigation, which is trying to make sure we don't get to uh, above 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius of warming. But there was also a big focus on adaptation, which is recognising that climate change is kind of, uh, you know, what happens if it does. And, uh, to, you know, in a way, it's, it's kind of already um, hurting some areas of the world in terms of rising sea levels, droughts, and more violent storms. I think you can see that everywhere. And the, the issue is just like, is there kind of corporate work being done at the moment on on that space and um the answer unsurprisingly is yes and you look at a company like uh switzerland's syngenta they are kind of basically spending a lot of time trying to work out how to make things like drought resistant cabbage and corn and mm-hmm. fungicides and to stop flood vanishing crops and that kind of stuff. Yeah it doesn't sound great but like um uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I might I might I might hold off on that for the moment but it's just the the general theme is just there is going to be increasingly a lot of investor focus on companies who are focusing on those those kind of areas of adaptation, and it's already kind of happening. And it, obviously, the Syngenta is one example. But in general, you will have a lot of big you know big engineers who can help uh, municipalities redesign their infrastructure. Veolia, the there's a big French company. Um, they do a lot of work on desalination. Um, that will in, increasingly you so know building
1: um, floodgates. Making sure that crops resist the new heat or the new pests that that occur, Uh, all of that kind of stuff, basically planning for the the really crappy scenario in which we do not manage to reduce uh, global warming. To yeah. to to. It's not. It's not, one it's, and not a half ha,
4: it's not. happy vibe. But it's um. It is going to make some money for someone in in the short, and, short
3: term. And
1: the point of it being in the predictions book, of course, is while everybody's focused on this, they're on on the mitigation. They're also going to start hedging their bets, and we'll start to see these guys, uh, exactly. perform. Okay. Lastly, you also wrote a piece, and you actually wrote this one ahead of the Glasgow climate conference, which yeah. was that forget COP think copper yeah <laughs>
4: or ex- yeah Not. Well, we like, don't
1: mean policemen we mean we mean the the metal yes
4: yeah, so, <laughs> um, basically the uh, you, you're going to need um, if we if we go back to mitigation and trying to stop uh, global warming um, kind of taking off too much you're basically going to need to electrify a load of a huge part of the energy system that is currently Basically run by fossil fuels, which produce the emissions which cause the problem, and um, the idea is you, you you electrify a lot of those things, most obviously you know with electric vehicles rather than uh, fossil fuel powered cars, and um, you provide a lot of um, clean energy to provide that electricity. Now, what's quite interesting about all this is that if you if you look at um, the projections on how much in order to kind of increase that level of electricity you need absolutely loads of copper we go copper wires to conduct to, to produce all this stuff and basically you're going to need a huge amount more basically a 60 percent increase by 2030 of um copper from where we currently are mm-hmm. um, and that's just there really isn't much focus on it at the moment uh, because basically you've got a lot of at the moment the assumption is that you know well copper prices, um, and aluminium prices, and these transition metals, the, their prices of them are pretty high. And the assumption is, well, that that's sending a price signal to the private sector to, um, you know, increase supply. And normally that should that should work. But the trouble is a lot of shareholders of these kind of companies are looking at um, the last 10 years and the last 15 years and seeing what happened when the last time prices were high. A lot of M&A happened, uh, a lot of new projects were committed to, and then they all went wrong and they had to be written down and everyone lost loads of money. So there's a reluctance to actually green light those kind of projects. And then the question is, how is that going to actually happen? Like, who's going to, because if we, we don't have this metal, we're not going to do, we're not going to be able to do the, the energy transition. So the, the the view is really just saying that governments, you know, as well as just sitting around thinking about how they're going to cut emissions, they also need to sit sit around and get their heads together and say, well, where are where is where in the globe are these projects and how are we gonna get them done? And how are we gonna incentivize yeah. the private sector to do them? And it's a pretty massive theme it will become more of a theme next year, I think.
1: Okay, well, th- this is helpful. So basically, if I go through your pieces, you're saying uh, that uh, buy Syngenta stock, uh, look, <laughs> go long uh, copper, uh, Go long, Saudi Arabia. At least, okay. I know you're not necessarily arguing that that people should be in Saudi Arabia, but you are saying that they'll sort of there'll be a lot more there, Um, and we should say this is despite the social questions that have arisen since the murder of Khashoggi. There, and go go
4: long, go long, um, go long, Dubai hotel rooms, probably, and Dubai hotel rooms. Okay. Well, that's
1: good. Uh, Well, have a have a happy new year, George.
4: I will will attempt to amidst amidst the lockdowns, yeah.
1: Bye. Hello, I'm Pete
5: Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong, and I'm chatting with Robin Mock about the world's largest chip maker, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, better known as TSMC. It's a huge part of the Taiwanese economy, um, and obviously it uses a lot of power and water and stuff, so um, cleaning it up is pretty important. Robin, can you explain a little bit about the progress that TSMC has made in terms of reducing its dependence on fossil fuels so far, and what you think the prospects are.
0: Hi, Pete. Uh, sure. So TSMC, like you said, it is the world's largest chipmaker. You know, chip making it's a really energy and water intensive process. So I was looking through the data. TSMC uses up to five percent of uh, Taiwan's uh, electricity, which is quite a lot. So on that front, TSMC is really pushing to green itself and make uh, and and sort of use more renewable sources. So it has set several pretty ambitious goals. Um, So it has a a net zero carbon emissions pledge by 2050. um, And in order to reach that, it's hoping to have 100% renewables by 2050. And and an even shorter term target goal is 25% renewables by 2030. And in order to do that, it really will have to push the Taiwan Taiwanese government to just accelerate its renewables development. So the island, it also has some pretty ambitious renewables goals. So by yeah, let me pause you for a second
5: in, in your, yeah. in your, in your, in your in your prediction where you're talking a bit about this uh, this push the TSMC might be giving, you wrote it before uh, Taiwan held these referendums. Um, which have now been held, uh, and and part of the referendums touched on on nuclear power and and clean energy. What was the outcome there? Um, was that was that positive for TSMC or
0: or what happened? Well, so recently Taiwan held four referendums, two of which related to the island's energy policies. Now, it's a really politically contentious issue. So, one of the referendums was whether or not to restart a nuclear power plant, and the other one was whether or not to relocate a planned LNG terminal uh, for environmental reasons. So both referendums actually did not pass. I think for TSMC, I mean, they didn't really have much of a position because for them, they're very much focused on developing renewable energies. But for the Taiwanese government and for the current President Tsai Ing-wen, It is a big plus for them because they have been campaigning on sort of a platform to phase out nuclear power completely, and in order to do that, they need to have you know more LNG, and also the other aspect of that is to raise the island's renewable goal to twenty percent up from five percent last year. So it's it's actually quite is that is
5: that realistic? I mean, so I mean, on, on paper.
0: Yeah, correct. So on paper it's it looks doable. I mean, it's it's the 20 30 50. Um so 20% renewables, 30% coal, 50% uh, LNG by 2025. That looks doable, but actually it looks increasingly out of reach. If you look at renewables, its share was only 5 or 6% last year. Getting up to 20% by 2025 is going to be a bit of a reach. Look at what's, the pandemic, what's the it's really, yeah, so the pandemic is one of the the big holdups. They've held up a lot of wind and solar projects, but actually there are other issues as well. So Taiwan itself, it's a very small island, so there's not a lot of land that you can just develop and put in solar farms, for instance. So the government has really turned to offshore wind, um, which looks like a really smart move, but there are, it, it's such an incredibly bureaucratic and legally complex process to set up these major offshore wind projects. A lot of these projects, they have to go through these really tough uh, environmental impact assessments. Um, There are also local procurement requirements, which are also really onerous, given how new the technology and industry is on the island. So there's just a lot of unfinished wind and solar projects out there. Um, so I'm arguing that actually TSMC, because it's in such a unique position, market cap is like 90% of the island's GDP. It has incredible political clout uh, within the government as well, just given the geopolitics of chipmaking. They can actually spur Taiwan's green transition, which you know has pretty much stalled over the past few years. There's another angle to this as well, which is that. You know, TSMC's customers and investors, they want TSMC to be greener. Um, so customers like Apple are really looking into their supply chains and even investors too, where ESG has become a really big factor in terms of where they're putting their money. So there's a lot of different factors that sort of come together and is really putting TSMC in a really unique and effective position to just push Taiwan's green transition.
5: Well, let me ask you, I mean, so obviously in the happy path, this happens and TSMC meets its green targets and Taiwan figures out how to slash the paperwork and throw up offshore wind and, you know, store it and use it in a way that, because chip making requires not only renewable power, but stable renewable power. So that's one (laughs) of the the tricks with it, right? You can't have outages. (laughs) You can't have brownouts. In the opposite scenario, this doesn't work. TSMC stays reliant on say coal and lng which is not renewable you know um that the deprecating nuclear actually makes taiwan's energy makes more you know emissions intensive or whatever what are the options that its customers have i mean these this this company is so huge and so strategic like can apple you know what could apple do if, if tsmc doesn't doesn't clean itself up
0: well i mean so tsmc it's it, it, I mean, this this company is just so important in the chip making industry, and there are very few rivals. So Samsung is probably one, maybe Intel down the line. Um, but for now, it's, you know, it's just if you want to make really bleeding edge chips in your Apple, I don't think there's really anyone else. And, you know, I think there are ways to address, you know, some of the concerns. So You know, solar and wind, for example, I mean, I think from a technology perspective, uh, maybe a few years ago, you know, it was definitely a major concern that it's not as reliable. But I think now today it's slightly getting better. And in terms of whether or not, you know, Taiwan can just cut the bureaucracy and paperwork and hit its 20 percent renewables, I mean, There's still a lot of uncertainty to to that. But I mean, just one example of how TSMC can really make a difference is that, you know, they recently signed a 20-year power purchasing agreement uh, with an offshore wind developer from Denmark. Um, And this is actually the world's largest corporate renewables deal to date, which is quite impressive. But because TSMC has... Wait, how does that jive
5: with the local procurement (laughs) requirements if they're buying from the the Danes?
0: (laughs) No, no, but so the, the local procurement uh requirements is that any offshore wind development projects, they must have a certain percentage that use local equipment and expertise. So it's not they only have to buy offshore wind from local companies. It's just a certain percentage of the project has to have some local supplies and components. But this I mean the but this agreement is just is an example of the difference that. TSMC can make, you know, because they are attracting, you know, foreign investors and foreign developers, they are sort of, you know, getting these big deals done because TSMC needs it, you know, chip making needs it. And if TSMC needs sort of clean energy and clean power, then I think there's a lot of incentive for the governments, for the government to just really lower a lot of these barriers right now.
1: All right, well, let's root for them then. Thanks a lot for talking to me, Robin. Thanks, Pete. That's our show for the week. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your hot, high-quality podcasts. And check us out every
3: day at breakingviews.com. Happy holidays.